Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Hands up if you have written thank you cards over the past week. So, or we'll include into that sent a text message or WhatsApp. The vast majority of us. It's a lovely thing to do after all the generosity of Christmas, isn't it? It's to, to say a very specific thank you for the kindness, the generosity of the other people to us. And in a very real sense, that's the context for the letter of the Philippians. Uh, Paul planted this church during his second missionary journey, which was about 10 years before this letter was written. We've got good reason to think, as Paul is writing this, he is in prison, probably in Rome. And if you look at a map, uh, Rome is probably something like 800 miles away from Philippi. It's a long way, and it's a long time. But over the 10 years since this church was started, this small church that has grown has been faithfully supporting Paul in his ministry ever since. And most recently, they had sent a gift and a message to him in prison in Rome with a man called Epaphroditus. We're going to meet him in chapter 2 in a few weeks' time. So the book we know as Philippians is, in some real senses, Paul's thank you letter to their church for their gifts, their care, their prayerfulness for him in ministry. But it's much more than that. It's much, much more than that. This letter is one of the most joyful and encouraging letters in the whole Bible. This letter is full of some of the richest and deepest themes and truths within Christianity. It's written by a former pastor who loves his former church. And out of the overflow of all of that love for them and for God, you have, throughout this letter, a wonderful description of the full assurance that comes from knowing that God will keep his people to the end. This letter is full of insight in how we can be, we can be content in every circumstance in Christ because we know that he is enough. This letter is full 
of an eternal perspective when life is hard. It gives us a fresh longing to serve God. It gives us needed reminders about how important prayer is and of the all-important goal of our lives to become more and more like Jesus. That is why we want to study the book of Philippians at the beginning of this year as a church family. We're going to start a new year with the longing that this book would shape how we look at life, all of life. The way that we relate to one another, the way that we live in the world, the way that we live before God. My prayer is that this book is going to change the way that we live this year. Now, when I started preparing this week, I thought that we would cover Paul's opening and his thanksgiving, which is verses 1 to 8. And then I started uh, reading and writing and realized that there is so much heart, goodness, beginning of the year, encouragement in just the first two verses. Now that's all we're going to look at this morning because tucked into what seems to be a very ordinary opening is one amazingly important lesson to underscore at the beginning of our year. Christian, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Many of us are very familiar with Paul's letters. We know the format that he uses when he writes them. So in Paul's day, when you write a thank you letter, you begin with your name as the person writing, you then make reference to the person you're sending it to, and then you add a greeting before you go on to say whatever it is that you're going to say. Um, Our custom is different, but that was Paul's convention, and that's what we've got in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, to all God's holy people at Philippi, grace and peace to you. So familiar uh, that the vast majority of us would probably skim it, thinking, I wonder what Paul's actually going to say and focus on in the rest of this letter. But those two verses remind us of how Jesus has transformed every single part of Paul's life. I want you to look at the prepositions, because there's three of them. And they are the center of all we're going to be thinking about this morning. Everything about Paul is of and in and from Christ Jesus. Those three things are going to remind us of key truths I want ringing in all of our ears at the beginning of this year. Number one, Christians are servants of Christ Jesus. That's what our translation says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I'm sure that many, many of you have watched a period drama over the course of the last couple of weeks. And maybe you read the word servants and something like um, the lower deck of the Downton Abbey crew comes to your mind. And you've got all of those familiar and much loved faces who um, are clearly in their position within the house of a lesser standing than the lord or lady of the house. But there's usually someone who's of a lower status to them. And when you think about what it's like, if you're a butler or a maid or a footman or whatever it was, um, you would have had your specific responsibilities in the home. And whenever his lordship or ladyship, their eye was on you, it was important that you did your job. But outside of that, your life was your own. And you could do whatever you wanted. That's not the image that Paul has in mind. 
the word that he uses, doulos, is, is literally translated bondservant or slave. And Paul's day, a slave is very different to a servant. Now, we might think, keeping it very simple, the slaves are at the very bottom of the ladder. The slave doesn't have an employment contract with his master. He's owned by the master. A slave doesn't have sections of his life that are completely his own. Every single part of him belongs to the master. The slave doesn't even own anything by his own right. Everything comes from the master. That is the, the sense in which every single aspect of a slave's life is completely dependent upon his master. And that is exactly the way Paul describes himself and you and me today. When you became a Christian, you were freed from your bondage to Satan. You have been freed from the controlling power of sin. Not to say it's not present and a battle in your life, but the controlling power of sin has been broken. You have been freed from the power of darkness, but you have not been saved into a spiritual Switzerland where everybody is independent and free for themselves. We have all been brought into the kingdom of God's Son, whom he loves. We have been brought into that kingdom because we have been bought at a great price. And the one who has brought us by buying us, he is our master. We are not free to do whatever we want. Now, if you are new to Christianity, that may not have been the news you were expecting at the beginning of a new year. It all turns on what the new master is like. So if he's like the old master, if he's a self-serving, power-grabbing, everything's-about-me tyrant like the old master, then you'd have a fair shout to say that Christians are gluttons for punishment. That in a very real sense, all that Christianity is doing is having you jump from the frying pan into the fire. But that's not who Jesus is. There is no master like Jesus. If you're with us just before Christmas, Matthew reminded us that our master, though he was rich, yet for your sake, Christian, for your sake, he became poor so that you through his riches, sorry, his poverty might become rich. God made our master who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus himself said he came that we may have life and have it to the full. There is a paradox that we live in as Christians where it is good to be bound. Being bound to the Lord Jesus Christ does not bring misery. It does not kill your life and all of your joy. Being in service to him brings real and true freedom. It's only as you're in him that your purpose being made and redeemed in the image of God can be lived out to the full. 
It's only as his spirit is giving you a new heart and a new conscience that you can delight to do what is good and rightly reject what is evil. We're going to get into chapter 4, into this lovely description that his spirit helps us choose what is true and noble and right and good and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. You can only do that if you're united to and in that right sense are bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be in him so that we can become more like him and then we can do what Jesus does, which is enjoy and glorify God. One writer I read this week pulls all of that lovely fullness together in this lovely phrase. He says, in being chosen to serve the Lord, we have a high calling to a lowly position. Isn't that a lovely description? We have a high calling to a lowly position. Now, as we start this new year, have, have you thought, have I thought, have we thought of ourselves and our plans for this year through that grid? I wonder if you've done what most of us, perhaps all of us, have done at the beginning of the new year as you've thought of your plans and your dreams for this coming year. You've started uh, with yourself and thought, what is it that I would love to do this year? What would I like to do more of or less of or more regularly? And you work out your plan, what you're going to do very quickly, what you're going to try and do for the whole of the year, and you get to all of the end of the planning phase, and then you say, dear God, please would you help me with all the things that I've planned? Well, look back at verse 1. Does that sound like the way we should plan as slaves, servants of Christ Jesus? Does it sound like we have sought to live out this year to come by beginning with him? Our plans shouldn't start with us, be wrapped up with a blessing. Our plans should start by recognizing who we are. We are servants, slaves of our heavenly master. And the right way that we should think about this year to come is to begin by remembering who we are and prayerfully then asking, Lord, what would you have me do? And then think about what those plans might look like. Now, if you reshape the way that you think about that year, um, that might significantly change the things that you have planned for this year. It might not significantly change your list at all. Because there are a lot of things that are going to be on lots of our lists, whether you've written them down, whether they're in your head, that are good things for Christians to do. It's a good thing for many different Christians in different circumstances to be thinking about getting a new job or about moving house or about spending more time with your family or friends or about being more regular at church. And so the list goes on. But I think the difference between does the list start with you or does it start with the fact that remembering that you're a slave to Christ, the difference is your motivation and your goal. If you were to look at that list... Is it driven by a desire to live out the reality of who you are because you are a servant of Christ Jesus? Have we made our plans 
joyfully remembering that we are the slave to the master who has given everything for us? Or are our plans still pretending that we're the masters of our lives? That's the first thing. Second thing, Christians are holy in Christ Jesus. Back in verse 1, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. If you're reading in the ESV, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, I'm just going to assume that every single person in this room knows that they're not holy. You feel that jarring sense of just knowing a zillion ways in which you are not saintly. And so you read verse 1, and um, a very simple reaction is, well, that can't be me then. Maybe the Philippians were some super holy bunch there in, in Philippi, and, and we're living on a higher spiritual plane, but I'm just an ordinary vanilla Christian, and, and that can't possibly be me. That way of thinking is made even worse um, when we look at the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if you remember this from when you were studying uh, religious studies in school, but there are five steps in the Catholic Church to become a saint. First off, the process doesn't begin until at least five years after someone has died, usually exceptional circumstances permitting. So you'd never know in this life whether you were a holy saint. And only then is an investigation begun. And the bishop of the diocese where you died begins this investigation and collating all the evidence of your life to work out whether your life was particularly virtuous. And if it is, if it's sufficient perhaps to be considered for sainthood, there is a congregation for the causes of saints. That's a body, an organization. Congregation for the causes of saints who sifts all the evidence, decides whether it's enough to send it all on to the Pope. And then the Pope looks at the portfolio, maybe with other people doing it for him as well, uh, and he decides whether this person has lived a sufficiently heroic, virtuous life. And if they did, then they can be recognized as venerable. A venerable is not a saint. There's still more steps to go. Because once you are venerable, then they can decide whether... There have been not one, but at least two occasions when prayers that have been offered to this venerable person who's died in heaven have been answered by them in a miraculous way on earth. And for the Catholic Church, that is proof that the person that they're thinking might be a saint is in heaven and able to intercede on God's behalf to bring about miracles on earth. Now, that whole system is unbiblical nonsense. There is no part of your salvation or indeed of your recognition as a human being that is based upon your life and the only person who intercedes on our behalf before the Father is Jesus. I hope everybody in this room is clear about that. But even if you are, I still think most people think saints are other people. Because we know our hearts. We don't instinctively think of ourselves as God's holy people. But that's exactly how God describes us in his word. Did you know that there are only three occasions when the word Christian 
is used in the Bible to describe a Christian. But there are more than 60 occasions when the word saint is used to describe us. Holy ones, sanctified ones, saints, they're all translating the same root word in Greek that is all building on the same idea from the Old Testament. All the way through the history of the Israelites, holy things were set apart by God. And that has always meant two things. There's always a a double meaning to being set apart. Something that is set apart is removed from one area that can no longer use it. And it's positively separated to a new area for an exclusive use. So if you can join us this evening, beginning of the new year, it's a great time to commit to coming to the Lord's meetings morning and evening. Evening service, we're going to be digging back into the book of Exodus. And we're going to be looking at the last section in Exodus as God gives all of the incredible detail about the temple. And we're going to see some of the many things that God set apart, made holy for God's people. We've already seen that the Sabbath day was set apart as holy. We're going to see that a curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. A plate of pure gold will be engraved with a seal that says, Holy to the Lord. Moses is going to anoint the tent, the ark, the tabernacle, and all of its articles, the lampstand, the altars, and the basin, to make them all holy. And using them and remembering God's commandments will enable his people to know, Exodus 31, verse 13, that God is the Lord and he makes his people holy. Dear Christian. Dear saint, you have been made holy. You are not holy in yourself. You cannot make yourself holy. Other people cannot open up the annals of your life and decide on the basis of all the evidence that we should call you holy. But you have been made holy holy. Not through a sacrificial system, but look again at the preposition in verse 1. You've been made holy to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. To become a Christian is to be so united to him that all of us becomes his and all of him becomes ours. He takes all of our sin and our mess-ups and all of our failures and our judgment, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. That's what it means to be united to Christ and to be in him. Now, if that is a new idea to you this year, um, I would love for you, if you don't already have a Bible, to take a Bible, come to me afterwards. I'd love to give you a Bible. If you've got Philippians in front of you, the very previous book is a book called Ephesians, which is a book that Paul, the same author, wrote to a church in a place called Ephesus. And in the very first chapter of Ephesians, if you read that after the service, you'll have this lovely description that Paul gives of what it means to be in Christ. That's where Paul unpacks that God chose us in Christ 
before the creation of the world. That's where we learn that in him we have redemption through his blood. And that in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity of his will. That is how precious it is to be in him. But all of that in him union, all of that separated from, separated to, does not mean that we live a segregated life. Look back at verse 1. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. God calls us to all of those wonderful blessings to enjoy that newness of life that is found in Christ where he's placed us. So God can say with the same contemporary application to us today, to all God's holy people, in Christ Jesus, at Leamington, and Warwick, and Coventry, and Dunchurch, and Stratford, and on we go. These are the places where God has called us to be holy and distinct witnesses to him. And that's not easy. And it's never been easy. Just think for a minute about how hard that would have been for the Philippians. To live out this double meaning of what it means to be holy, to be, to be separated from one world, to be set apart for another world. Think about that, what that would have been like for the Philippians. Uh, they lived in a world that celebrated debauchery and immorality and a whole world of unmentionable sinfulness. The Philippians couldn't have been more radically different. In the Roman Empire, they would have stuck up like sore thumbs for every single person to see that they just weren't the same as them. And that's exactly God's plan. Look down in chapter 2 and verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. What makes stars shine brightly? Dark skies. Stars don't disappear in the daytime. It's just we can't see them as clearly. They shine brightly against the dark skies. And that's what it would have felt like for the Philippians to be holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. I'm sure they would have felt as they looked around them at the world that there were loads of things that would have left them feeling discouraged and depressed and that life was just too difficult. But that, that is the perfect setting for godly, moral intentionally different Christians to shine like stars. As we think about the year to come, there are a whole bucket list of things that make us anxious as Christians. We were praying about some of them in our prayer meeting on Wednesday. 
There's national policies and draft guidance that are just sinful. There are cultural trends going on in our country that leave us anxious about what our country is going to look like, not just for our generation, but for our children and for their children. Christians are facing challenges in their schools and workplaces because they are followers of Jesus. And if you're older than I am, perhaps your initial reaction is to say, well, I wish we could go back to the good old days, 20 or 40 or 60 years ago, when it was easier in some ways to be a Christian. And in many ways, it may well have been easier to be a Christian then. But the Christian witness may not have been as effective. What makes stars shine brightly is a dark sky. This year may be difficult. And it's right that we know that so that we're not discouraged if that's how it turns out. It may feel like the sky is getting darker. And that may be a fair description of what's actually happening. But don't lose heart. Stars shine more effectively in the darkness. And we have all of a new creation to enjoy the easy life with Jesus. Thirdly and finally, Christians have received grace and peace from Christ Jesus. Again, if you were writing one of those thank you letters in Paul's day, uh, you know the format, person who's writing to the person they're writing to. And then what they would do in Paul's day, just generally, is they'd add the word greetings. And what Paul does is he takes that approach and he makes it uniquely Christian by taking two words, a a Greek New Testament idea, grace, with an Old Testament Hebrew idea, peace. And those things aren't just things Christians say. Uh, We are living in one of those weird times of the year when we say things just because they're the things that you say. And loads of us are left wondering, when is it the right time to stop saying Happy New Year? How many more emails do I need to send that begin Happy New Year? Everybody keeps doing it for as long as somebody is brave enough to stop doing it and then you can take it out. But until that period comes, for some indefinite period in January, you begin every single email by saying, Dear so-and-so, Happy New Year, this is what I really want to say. And everybody knows they haven't really taken time to think of the person that you are writing to and think, I really hope that person has a Happy New Year. That's not what you do. It's just stuff you type, and on you go. Well, grace and peace aren't just Christian words to say. They're the heart of Christianity. Grace, you see, is not the same as mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. So I deserve God's judgment Because I have sinned against him. And the fact that God hasn't already judged me is because of his mercy to me. But grace is more than mercy. Grace is not receiving what I deserve. 
Sorry, mercy is not receiving what I deserve. Grace is receiving what I don't deserve. I don't deserve God's forgiveness, the gift of his spirit, the adoption into his family as a son, the hope and sure and certain hope of eternal life in a new creation with him. But every Christian receives all of those things because of God's grace. Now, how can a sinner like me, like you, receive all of those good things? Back into verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have received grace because Jesus has taken in our place all of the punishment for all of the evil things we've done and all of the good things we have failed to do. And he has given us all of his perfect record, of his perfect obedience of a perfect life. And from that fountain of grace flows a river of peace. We were thinking about this um, as we were running up to Christmas as well, weren't we? That the Bible explains that born human beings, we are not born as God's friends. We're not born knowing God's peace. Left to ourselves, we're born as his enemies. We're born as those sinners who are spiritually dead. It's only when we become Christians and receive God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive all of these wonderful blessings, including the peace of a new relationship with God where he is our Father. Because of his Son, by the work of his Spirit in our lives. So... Do you know the grace that leads to peace? If you don't, you are going to enter 2024 with a weight upon your heart that will grow increasingly heavy. That weight is the burden of sin and not one of us can remove it. It has to be paid for. And there are only two choices. Either you pay for it in hell forever. Or you trust Jesus to pay for it for you. Every single Christian in this room is praying that this would be the year when you would know the grace that leads to peace. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, what riches we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot truly understand how much we owe to him. We can't fully describe our thankfulness for all that we have in him. Father, we ask and pray that you would open our eyes to see how precious it is to be servants of our Savior, to be saved and to know all that we have in him and to receive all the blessings that come from him. 
please, would we live out this year with, with that lens to look at all of life, that we would shape our life and our prayerful ambitions and everything about this year to come because of who we are in Christ. And we pray that you would please graciously bring others to know and love him this year. We do not know how long it will be until you return. Not one of us knows when our time on this earth will end and we will stand before our maker. There are enough of us in this room who know or are related to people who are near to the end of their days. And some of those men and women have not lived three score years and ten. Father, we do not know what lies ahead. And we ask that you would please prepare and save every single person in this room that they would be ready to meet our master. For every Christian here, we pray that you would please thrill us afresh with the truth of knowing all that we have in him. And for all that is uncertain about this year, for all that may be hard about this year, for all that leaves us anxious about this year, we pray that our identity and our future would become so much more real and precious to us that we would joyfully trust you and serve you and bring you glory in all that is to come. That we would lift the name of Jesus high and bring you glory. Amen.